The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to Mark. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethphage and Bethany, at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, Why are you doing this? Say, The Lord has need of it, and will send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at the door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, What are you doing, untying the colt? And they told him what Jesus had said, and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus, and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before, and those who followed, were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. The Gospel of the Lord. Please remain standing while I pray for us. Oh Lord, please use these words I'm about to speak to work into us the truth of your gospel and more of the likeness of your Son, Jesus. May you be glorified, and may we be emboldened to work for your kingdom and yours alone. In the mighty name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Please be seated. He made his way into the city of Jerusalem, escorted by an impressive procession. Soldiers on horseback and on foot, clad in leather armor and outfitted with iron helmets. His cavalry and foot soldiers, numbering about 600 men, were armed with weapons designed to kill efficiently. Residents of Jerusalem and surrounding towns would have heard from a distance the steady rhythm of hooves and marching feet, growing louder as he drew closer. There could be no mistake about who was at the center of this procession. His name was Pontius Pilate, and he was being escorted as he made his way to Jerusalem for the Feast of Passover. You see, Jesus was not the only one at the center of a procession leading into Jerusalem days before Passover. The Roman governor of the province of Judea was also en route, entering the city from the west to take up temporary residence in a palace built by Herod the Great. Perhaps, like me, you didn't realize that Pilate did not reside in Jerusalem. Instead, he lived in a magnificent compound in Caesarea by the sea, about 55 miles away to the northwest. Caesarea was known as the Roman capital of Israel. 
and from there the entire region was governed. However, it was standard practice for the Roman governor to come to Jerusalem for the three major Jewish festivals, bringing with him plenty of reinforcements for the Praetorian Guard who were stationed in Jerusalem year-round. Because with Jewish pilgrims flooding the city during these three festivals, unrest was always a possibility, especially around the Feast of Passover. Passover marked the liberation of the Israelites from slavery in Egypt by the God of Israel thousands of years before. And the political overtones to this feast were apparent to Jews as well as to those who occupied their land. If we simply think of Passover as the culmination of miraculous events that allowed the Israelites to leave Egypt, we will miss the fact that they were being delivered from the bondage of a brutal regime. As far as many Jews were concerned, the parallels between the Roman Caesar and the Egyptian Pharaoh were unmistakable, and they longed to throw off the yoke of foreign oppression. This made the observance of Passover especially volatile. From the standpoint of the Romans, rebellion around the time of this festival was always a possibility, and they needed to be prepared to stamp it out quickly. But from the standpoint of Jewish zealots, Passover provided them with incentive to gain freedom for their people. Many Jews at the time of Jesus were looking forward to a new Passover of sorts, out from under the bondage of Rome and to a Messiah who would lead the way. Also heading into Jerusalem for the feast of Passover, but from the east, on the opposite side of the city, was Jesus. If not on the same day as Pilate and his troops, then shortly before or after that. In procession with Jesus were ordinary people, simply dressed, waving leafy branches cut from the fields. No armor, no weapons, no battle-hardened foot soldiers marching around him. This was not a procession designed to intimidate. The evangelist Mark makes it clear that Jesus was seated not on a magnificent war horse, but on a colt, either a young donkey or horse. The grasping of worldly power was not Jesus' aim. His was, however, a procession fit for a king, for a king of the Jews, that is. Mark tells us that the people who surrounded Jesus waving leafy branches were shouting verses from Psalm 118. Hosanna, which means God save us, 
Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. Psalm 118 was one of several songs sung during the Passover meal in Jesus' time. And when the Jewish people sang it, they looked forward to the day when a future king, like David, would lead a victory procession to the temple. So in shouting these verses from the psalm, as Jesus made his way slowly into Jerusalem, seated on a colt, the people were petitioning God to save them and simultaneously proclaiming that Jesus was the one who could. So this seemingly festive and spontaneous procession was loaded with messianic symbolism and was potentially explosive in 33 AD. The Jewish people would have remembered also that less than 200 years before, a man named Judas Maccabeus, the son of a priest, had routed the Syrian king and his army who were occupying Jerusalem. After the triumphant Judas cleansed the city and temple, the people waved palm branches and ivy and sang hymns of praise celebrating their deliverance from the enemy. However, the Maccabees held on to power for little more than a century. Their reign came to an end, and the people of Israel found themselves subjected to a foreign power once more when Rome installed Herod the Great on the throne. So, given this recent history, Expectation for Jesus among some Jewish people were high as he entered Jerusalem for the Feast of Passover. They wanted a king like David, whose kingdom would last. They wanted to be freed from the yoke of foreign oppression. And yet these expectations were not totally baseless because Jesus had come to deliver his people. But he had not come to deliver his people from an oppressive government. Jesus' disciples had expectations also, but they were confused about power and the kind of kingdom Jesus would establish. Just before his richly symbolic procession into Jerusalem, two of Jesus' disciples, James and John, asked Jesus to give them, when he came into his kingdom, the top positions of authority. It was like asking him whether they could be his vice president and secretary of state. But Jesus explained to them that power and authority would be exercised differently in his kingdom. His followers were not going to be like the rulers of the world. Instead, he said that anyone who wants to be great must first become a servant. And anyone who wants to be first 
must be everyone's slave because he, Jesus, had not come to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus' kingdom was not going to look like all the other kingdoms of the world. Arrogance, intimidation, and selfish ambition, typical in any kingdom or government, would not characterize his kingdom. Jesus had come to set God's people and all of creation free from the powers that held them in bondage. But as king, he would do this work of deliverance by giving up his life. Therefore, love and sacrifice and humility, power of a different sort, would characterize his kingdom. It would not be of this world resembling other kingdoms. Instead, it would be for this world in humble, forgiving, and selfless love. Now, the disciples and others anticipating deliverance were confused also about who their real enemies were. They assumed that their enemies were Pilate and Caesar or perhaps the chief priests and scribes. However, their real enemies were those who tempted, who incited, who worked in and through Pilate and Caesar and all people everywhere to bring about rebellion against God. Since the garden long ago, these enemies, the powers of evil and sin and death, had been bent upon destroying all of God's good and beloved creation, working in and through human beings to accomplish their end. But being used as a pawn does not mean Pilate and Caesar, as well as you and I, are not responsible for our sin. Scripture tells us that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, which means we are not innocent victims. We are readily entrapped, entrapped by our natural desire for power, for prestige, for self-determination. However, the powers which held the world in bondage had to be overcome so that the forgiveness of sins could become the defining aspect of a new covenant and so that the transformation through faith in Jesus of naturally sinful people could commence and so that the renewal of the whole created order could be launched. In resisting temptation to avoid the cross, Jesus broke the power of evil as he died on it. 
In accepting the consequences of our rebellion, Jesus robbed sin of its hold over us. And in dying on our behalf, Jesus canceled death's claim on our lives. In a manner of speaking, it can be said that Jesus' crucifixion was his royal enthronement because that is when he became king as he gave his life as a ransom for many. So now, through faith in Jesus Christ and through the power of his spirit, a sinful and selfish person like me can be transformed into someone who's becoming slowly but surely more like him, more humble, more forgiving, more loving. Only in and through Jesus is there power to transform our naturally sinful nature, setting aright our appetites and realigning our perspective, giving us the will to follow after Jesus and the desire to do things according to the way his kingdom is run. So now we, the church, are called to proclaim Jesus as king. And we are called to live our lives in accordance with a kingdom that is not of the world, but is instead for it. In humility, in forgiveness, and in selfless love. For the word of the cross may be folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Amen.